you have a fantastic rest of your day. Don't forget, Jesus loves you. Adios. All right, we are in our series through the life of Christ. We started at Christmas with his birth, and we're going up to Easter, to his death and resurrection. And uh, right now, we are just five weeks away from Palm Sunday. That makes one week away from Easter Sunday. This is just like, how did time fly? Um, so as we're looking at the book of Luke, um, chapter 9, it says that as the time drew near for him, being Jesus, to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. This happens in Luke chapter 9. So you think about all of Jesus' first part portion of his life has happened up to chapter 9. And from chapter 9 on is basically from his journey in Galilee to Jerusalem to his crucifixion. The rest, the, the rest of like 24 chapters is the last half of, or the last portion of his life. So as the, as his life kind of, if you get down to the last weeks even of his life, the, the book gets bigger and bigger, if that makes sense. So more and more happens. So um, Jesus, when he looks to Jerusalem resolutely, it means that he knew what he was facing. He was walking towards his death, his crucifixion, and he, he wasn't walking into it blindly. It wasn't like he walked into it and got murdered. He knew what he was walking towards and he knew he was going to lay down his life uh, on that at that time. Now, as an aside, just as an interesting fact that follows that verse in verse 51 of Luke 9, where it says he set his face towards Jerusalem, uh, I want to read this, this last little segment because it cracks me up a little bit. Also, it's a little sad. Um, it says this. Um, so he set his face towards Jerusalem um, with resoluteness, and then he sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. Remember, in order to get from Galilee to Jerusalem, you have to go through Samaria, unless you want to take the long way around. And so he sends messengers ahead that he's going to go through, but the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. Do you recall that Samaritans thought that you were supposed to worship God at a certain mountain? Not in Jerusalem. So they were like, you're not welcome here. We don't want you here because you're going to Jerusalem. And so, when James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? And Jesus turned and rebuked them. So they went on to another village. I, I, I think that just cracks me up because a couple chapters before, Jesus had just empowered the disciples to go out and like cast out demons and heal the sick. And so I'm sure they had these new like powers from God and they're like, they don't like you, Jesus. Shall we smite them? And, uh, and Jesus is like, Chill, dudes. Come on now. Um, and and, and he, t- he actually uh, rebukes them, which at this point I'm sure they were just really used to. But uh, I think it's interesting because for Christians, a lot of Christians, they see people that think and feel differently than them or maybe even defame Jesus. They say they don't like Jesus. They say they don't like what we believe. And we're like, God, I can't wait till you smite them. But Jesus is all about bringing possibility of hope and life and a new kingdom. Anyway... That was a bonus that's not even in my message. I just was, so we're looking now in these last five weeks as Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem. He's going through Samaria and he's heading towards uh, what would be his death and resurrection. So um, 
but before this happens, we're actually going to back up a couple chapters to Luke chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. Um, Jesus had just finished the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, Pastor Todd um, closed out our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Powerful, powerful. Um, and Jesus finishes this, and he goes back to the area of the Sea of Galilee. That's kind of where his central ministry was. And uh, while he's here, Jesus hears one of the most disturbing questions in the Bible. In my opinion, one of the most disturbing questions you'll read in the Bible happens. But before we get there, I want to tell you that uh, my wife's family is from a little island in the South Pacific called Guam. And every couple of years we go and visit them. I know I have to suffer for Jesus on a tropical island for a while, but just pray with me. Um, but several years ago we went there and my father-in-law told me, he said, Brent, let's go parasailing. And... Uh, I don't intentionally choose heights if I can help it. I'm like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm a little bit height adverse, I suppose you could say. But I didn't want to look like a chicken in front of my father-in-law. You can't show weakness. And so I was like, yeah, love it. And so we, uh, we went and, and we went to go parasailing. But this was not the standard parasailing you see where they put you in like a five-point harness and you're like attached by different apparatuses to this thing. These were essentially two glorified lawn chairs bolted together. And, uh, and, and I, I sit down and I'm, I, I go, where's the seatbelt? Where's the strap? And they go, gravity's fine. It'll, you'll, you're fine in the chair. And I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and so we sit in this thing. And I did notice that the people that rode right before us were two girls that were maybe this tall and had a combined weight of maybe 80 pounds. And me and my father-in-law, we are the same height and about the same build. And I was like... And I saw the guys on the boat kind of discussing, should we get the bigger parachute thing out? And they're like, yeah, no, we're good. And so we get in these lawn, this lawn chair and we're off and we're floating and it's beautiful. And uh, we, we're going, but then I noticed we're starting to drop a little bit and we're getting lower. And I'm like, we're going to land in the ocean possibly. We were starting to really get low. And so you could see the guys communicating in the boat and the guy hits the throttle. And we pick up a little more speed and up we go and we're way up there then. And we are really moving. And then I noticed we're starting to do this a little bit. And I was like, oh, just and I kind of hold on to the edge. And I'm starting to feel a, a little bit of doubt about the situation. And uh, uh, I don't want to show it. I'm like, wee, you know, and, and, <laughs> and then it starts to really move side to side considerably to the point that we are like this holding on each time. And, and I look out to the side instead of the parasail being over our head, it's over here. I am concerned. I am concerned amount of doubt in what we're doing here. And, and we're swinging back and forth really aggressively. And at one point, you know when you see a water skier come across the wake and they're like parallel with the boat? We were parallel with the boat sideways. And I could look down and there's the guy driving the boat kind of below us. And I look as he looks up at us and terror fills his eyes. You don't want the guy that's running the show to be like, oh no. And, and, and we're like holding on to the chair because there is no seatbelt. We're like, oh, this is fun, you know, and we're reminding each other how much fun we're having. And this guy is yelling at the other guy and they're like gesturing at each other and we're speeding up and slowing down and speeding up and slowing down and whipping back and forth. And the guy's got the real thing that's zooming us back in because you can tell they're like, we got to get these guys in. And uh, and you know how a tape measure when it gets to the very end goes right at the end? That was us at the end getting on the boat. Right up. As we were flinging back and forth, I literally had visions in my mind of what, did I, what was the last thing I said to my family? What was, 
What's the newspaper headline going to be? American guy lost at sea, you know, somewhere in the South Pacific because he took a dumb parachute ride. And I, I thought of all the worst things. I had doubt and it, it didn't help my doubts when I saw the person that should be in control looked like they had some serious doubts. And, uh, and I'm glad I, I can tell you this story today, to be honest. I can, I'm glad that I, I could actually share this with you. Um, but uh, doubt is something that can enter our lives at different points and different periods. Our trust in people, we can hit doubt. Um, our trust in uh, governments and systems, whatever it might be. But uh, Jesus was here and he was asked a question and that question was filled with doubt. And the, the reason I said this is such a bombshell question is this. It wasn't the question that was asked even necessarily. Because if this, it was really about who asked the question. If this question was asked by someone like Simon, who was a zealot, who didn't have his political ideals right, he was a crazy person, you'd kind of go, oh, that kind of makes sense from that guy. Or if it was from the Samaritan woman whose religion was all cattywampus, you'd go, well, that kind of makes sense from her. Or if it was from the rich young ruler who was all about the money and all about those things, you'd say, well, that kind of makes sense. But this question came from someone you'd go, they shouldn't be asking that kind of question, you'd think. So if you have your Bibles, Luke 7, we're going to be in verse 18. It says this, the disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? This was a profound question. It was a moment of doubt for John. And and let me tell you, Doubt can be expected, but this was John the Baptist. His middle name was The. He, he, was, he, he was the one who preceded Jesus. He was the one who prepared the way for him. He literally lived in the desert wearing a fur coat before it was vogue, eating grasshoppers and honey. His whole job, the purpose of his life was to point the way and prepare the way for Jesus. When he was in utero, when he wasn't even born yet, he was in the the, the proximity of Mary and she said, I'm going to have a baby and he leapt in his mother's tummy. So before he was even born, he was living out his purpose to prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus was the whole purpose of his life and he knew it. As a matter of fact, in John 1, when when John sees Jesus coming down to be baptized, He goes, look, there he is, the one, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. He knew who Jesus was, the Lamb of God, who's come to take away the sins of the world. And after, after he baptizes Jesus in the book of Matthew, Jesus comes out of the water and God speaks and he says, this is my son who I love. And John hears that, that, that's a pretty good sign that Jesus is who he says he is in God talking from the sky. So he has been living out his life with this purpose to prepare the way for Jesus. His whole existence is wrapped around Jesus. He's heard the the voice of God telling him who Jesus is. And, and, And then he comes to Jesus at this point in the story though and says, So Jesus, are you the one or should we be looking for someone else? John, who Jesus called the greatest person to ever be born, was struggling with doubt. And sometimes uh, this is a topic that we don't really feel comfortable that we can talk about these things, about doubt. Because if you're a 4.0 uh, valedictorian Christian with the gold leaf Bible and the tabs, you should not have doubt in your life. Right? 
If you, if you, um, if you are truly a, a good Christian, you shouldn't grapple with doubt. But let me tell you, if the absence of doubt was a prerequisite for being used by God, uh, Abraham and Sarah would not be the father and mother of a nation. David would never have become king of Israel. Moses would never have led Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Mary could not have been the mother of Jesus. Peter would have never preached on the day of Pentecost and become the rock on which Jesus built his church. God used people that dealt with doubt, people that we hold as really champions of the faith. Maybe you felt or you've heard that you're not a strong, true believer if you've ever struggled with doubt. But let me tell you, if you start with a point in your life that the proof of your faith is that you never experience doubt, the moment you do experience doubt, your faith will crumble. If your starting point with your faith is I should never experience doubt, the minute you have doubt that steps into your life, then, then the whole basis crumbles. So let me tell you, for me, I'm actually comforted by John's doubt. I actually take some comfort in seeing that God is big enough to handle it when I quake. See, doubt isn't sin. Doubt is actually elemental in our spiritual walk. And uh, if we were to never meet resistance in our Christian walk or experience disappointment or experience silence when we want to hear God's voice, then there would be no need for faith, would there? What's faith if we never have those moments of resistance where we feel pushback, where we feel uh, questions? So, so I want to take John's story here and really look at the anatomy of doubt. What is doubt? So... First of all is this, what I, what I pulled from this is doubt is born out of discouragement. Doubt, doubt is born out of discouragement. The, what, what's the background of what happened here? Well, there was a king of Judea and Galilee, and his name was Herod. And he, he, Actually, he had kind of a two name. It was Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas had uh, a brother named Herod, because they didn't have a very creative naming system at the time, apparently. So Herod and Herod, the brothers. Herod Antipas went and visited his brother Herod Philip, and he saw Herod Philip's wife, who's, ironically, her name includes the name Herod in her name. It's Herodias. And he saw Philip's wife, his sister-in-law, and he's like, I take a shining to her. I, th- I fancy her. And so what he did was, he went home, he divorced his wife, then he went and stole Philip's wife, made him divorce her, and married her. That's messed up. But they didn't live with the First Amendment back then. John spoke up and said, what you did was wrong, it was evil, and that was a sin. And Herod goes, good story, you're going to jail. And he threw him in prison. And John has been sitting, rotting in prison for at least a year by this point that this happened in this story. John's been rotting in prison, and, and now he's sitting there, and, and, uh, and, and you can imagine that he probably knew the likelihood of his exiting prison was not based on uh, filing a really good uh, you know, grievance against the state or anything like that, or appealing his, his whatever it might be. The likely exit from Herod's prison is execution. This would be a discouraging situation. No real time of being released, not knowing what the end goal was going to be or end game was going to be. But how many of us can identify with some of the things that John was undoubtedly facing in that time? Think about him sitting in this prison. Imagine the shame that John was experiencing. Some of us in this room may have gone through an actual time of incarceration and shame. Maybe there's other shame that you've walked through and dealt with in your life. The loneliness, the isolation, the hunger... 
The physical brokenness. How many of us would say doubt starts to creep into my life through discouragement when my, my body is breaking down on me? I, I can't seem to, to get to the other side of it. It's something that's constantly there. Um, emotional struggle, isolation, all these things. Discouragement is a perfect breeding ground for doubt, isn't it? And John was sitting in this place of discouragement and that doubt was creeping up. John wasn't the only person to deal with that. Uh, David, uh, the psalmist and the king, wrote about this in Psalm 77. He went through his own time of doubt and discouragement. He wrote in Psalm 77, verse 5, he says, I think of the good old days. How many of us have ever said that? Oh, remember the good old days? I think of the good old days, long since ended, when my nights were filled with joyful songs, when I search my soul and ponder the difference now. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Is his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? Interlude. And interlude is a Hebrew word for guitar solo. Um, (laughs) David went through a profound time of discouragement. Time when we question even what we know to be true, what we've experienced. Is it true? When things are bad, how many of us have wondered, God, were you ever good? When was the last time you were good? That's what David was asking here. God, have you slammed the door on your compassion? And so, so that's the first anatomy of doubt as it creeps in when we go through discouragement. The second thing is this, doubt can rise out of our unmet expectations. Our unmet expectations. You see, John preceded Jesus. He was the older cousin of Jesus. And he prophesied as to what Jesus would do when he came along. He was prophesying and telling everybody about what would happen in Matthew chapter 3. John said in verse 2, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Say near. Near. I'll say it again. Say near. near. The kingdom of heaven is near. Verse 10, Even now. The axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Jumping to verse 12. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. That's a fire and brimstone message right there. John had an expectation of Jesus. He's coming. The kingdom of heaven is near. He says the axe of God's judgment is literally poised. Can you imagine that? You know when you're chopping wood and you set it on your target? I imagine that's what he's saying. He's seeing that the axe of God's judgment is poised and ready to go. And John's disciples come back with a report to John. And they tell him about everything that Jesus is doing. And John's in prison and he hears the report and he's going, you know what, there's a real lack of axing things and uh, burning stuff with fire and judgment bombs. Where's all that? I've been prophesying about this is what Jesus would do. As a matter of fact, Jesus didn't exactly have a big uprising that was ready to make him king. Although there was times that they were ready to do that, Jesus kept rejecting it. And, and so John's sitting in jail and, and I'm sure he's thinking of the prophet Isaiah that he often quoted where, uh, Jesus, where the, the prophet says he's going to come and set the captives free. And he's thinking, uh, your cousin's a good place to start sitting in prison right now. Come set the captives free here, Jesus. And, uh, and, and Jesus wasn't doing exactly what John had been expecting. Instead of the threshing floor with sinners and never-ending fire, Jesus says, I've come to bring good news and I'm proclaiming good news to the poor. Now, 
Let me tell you this. This is important. Will there be a day of God's divine wrath and judgment? Yes. Yes, there will. Um, but probably not in the time frame that John was thinking of. Look at the language he used. He said, the kingdom of heaven is near. He said, even now, the acts of God's judgment. He said, it is poised and it is ready to sever the roots. He was looking at the immediacy of this judgment coming from Jesus. And now he's sitting in prison and he's feeling this discouragement because the things that he thought would be these expectations are going unmet. How many of us would say there's been times where we've prayed with an expectancy for an answer and God does not give us the result we were looking for? Or maybe in the time frame we were anticipating or expecting. You're like, God, I put that on my Google, Google calendar. It was supposed to be done by now. And God doesn't come through and answer and respond in the ways or the timing we would like. It's a breeding ground of doubt. Next is doubt is fed by our own limited perception. Think about... John, sitting in prison here, we don't see the big picture, do we? All we have are the walls of kind of this allegorical prison that we're in. We're struggling, we're lonely, we're tired, we start to ask big questions. I would imagine I'm not alone in some of these. God, are you really all-powerful? God, are you actually real? God, do you really love me? Yes, I know the verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But do you love me, God? How do I know, God, that I'm really saved? That you really, when I one day breathe my last and pass into eternity, that one day you'll meet me and I will have eternity with you. That, it, that, that existence is even what you promised. God, are you even real? And you know what you say? Those are some pretty big questions, Brent. No one should be asking those if they're a believer. Let me tell you, the actual question John asked Jesus is, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? Are you who you say you are? That's a big question. Are you who you say you are? And here's, here's what's so important. John gives this perfect model with what we're supposed to do then with our doubts. He has all these doubts and these things that feed into it. But the nice thing is that John, John's story doesn't just tell us the anatomy of doubt and be like, oh yeah, we all have that. But the way John responds to it gives us a way that we can follow through with our own struggles with doubt. First of all, what's the first thing John does with it? He takes it to God. He takes his doubts to God. John took the fight to his doubt. He didn't just sit there in his prison cell and ruminate on it and agitate over it. Ah, oh, what if? Mm. He sent his disciples, right? It says in eight, verse 18, so John called for two of, his, two of his disciples and he sent them to the Lord. He didn't just go around town or ask people to go around town and say, what are people saying about Jesus? Let's look up a Wikipedia article about it. Let's get a good self-help book about it. He took it straight to God. He took his doubts. He took his questions to Jesus. He, he, um, when we take our questions and get doubts to God, let me tell you, he doesn't condemn us. I'm so grateful for that. Sometimes I think we're afraid to tell God we're doubting because we're like, that's kind of not a good thing to tell God. But let me tell you, the Savior will not break a bruised reed. He hears our pleas and he's patient with our doubts. And if, if we seek him, he will be found. In John's darkness and in his pain, Jesus sent a promise to, his, to bolster his faith. And let me tell you, he will do the same for you. When you seek after God, when you seek after him with all of your heart and say, God, I need you to show yourself to me. I'm struggling with doubt. God's not going to, to, to hide from you. He's not playing some divine game of hide and go seek and like never find me. He wants to be known to you. And when we seek him, he will be found. If you seek him, he will do the same for you as he did for John. The next thing is this. John listened to the voice of truth. 
It says in verse 22, Then Jesus told John's disciples, Go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, and those with leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. He says, this is the report you need to give John. Let me tell you, we have a choice of the voices we listen to. We have the ability to choose who we listen to. Just like in the, uh, when I'm driving and listening to a radio show or a podcast, I can switch that channel if I'm tired of it or I'm tired of that voice or whatever that story is or whatever it might be. I can push a button and switch what I'm listening to. Let me tell you, we can choose the voices that we give credence to and that we listen to. Whose voice are we listening to? Are we listening to the voice of truth? Are we listening to, to things that are, are true? Remind yourself of what God has done because the voices we listen to are the voices we give power to. Remind ourselves of what God has done. Write down the miracles that he does when they happen so you can look back and say, remember God when you did this? Remember God when you did this? You see, God has done amazing things. I love testimony nights. I love remembering the things God has done for me. But we have the memories of a goldfish. I am in the moment all the time. I get frustrated. I'm like, God, you're failing me. Right? And we feel doubt and we feel troubled over it. Remember, we just read Psalm 77, right? David, with all his questions and doubt, God, have you slammed the door on your compassion? But he follows it up with this in the very next verses. Verse 10, he says, And I said, this is my fate. The Most High has turned his hand against me. Verse 11. But then I recall... All you have done, O Lord, I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. He recalls, he brings back to his memory, remember all the things you've done. Wait, wasn't it, wasn't it a while ago that uh, I w- there was some sort of giant that was attacking our land and we couldn't do anything about it and the Philistines were overrunning us and, and you gave me the power to pick up a little rock and not even use armor and, and, and put in a sling and I killed a giant? Didn't that happen? Oh, didn't, didn't God you protect me when I was on the run and there was a king and his entire army trying to kill me and I was hiding in caves and yet you saved me from that situation and you placed me on the throne? Didn't that happen, God? Oh, wait a minute, God, didn't you draw me out from from my my sin and my failure and all these things? And he reminds himself of all the times God has answered it. So why not in this moment would God be any different? And he reminds himself and he listens to the stories that God has done. And the same way we should listen to the stories that have been passed through people that have gone through the same trial we have. People that have experienced the same struggles we have. Let others' testimonies feed us and encourage us. We need to immerse ourselves in the word. Let me tell you, battling doubt without a foundation in the word is a futile fight. Battling doubt without being based in the word is empty and it will be a a guaranteed loss. Jesus was quoting from the prophet Isaiah when he sent his response to John. Did you know that? He wasn't just saying some neat things he read on Pinterest once. He was quoting Isaiah. He was quoting scripture to John. He said, go back and tell John what you're seeing. And, and he, he quotes what the prophet Isaiah said would happen. You see, um, G- biblical revelation bolsters our faith. Biblical revelation um, encourages us, but also it reminds us, God will always be true to his word, always. God will never fail his word. He will not say something and be like, ah, oh, takes these backsies. God is faithful to his word. Last is this, we need to find a place of rest. I mentioned it before, having doubt isn't a sin. Isn't that nice, right? We take that, and so often we're like, man, I'm feeling some doubt right now, and then we take that guilt upon ourselves. But let me tell you, while it's not a sin, 
We cannot let doubt become a dead end for us, though. We are not meant to perpetually live in doubt. Just like having some distant relative show up at your house and being like, can I crash on your couch? And then you say, yeah. And they come in and they bring like a mini fridge into your living room and like all this stuff. You're like, how long are you staying? And they're like, I don't know. It's kind of open-ended, you know? And, and this just bizarre, they're just living with you for an unknown amount of time. Let me tell you, like an unwanted house guest, doubt is not meant to overstay its welcome in our heart. But so often we allow it to, don't we? Uh, the author of the book, The Life of Pi, his name is Yann Martel. He wrote this. He said, I'll be honest about it. It's not atheists who get stuck in my craw, but agnostics. Doubt is useful for a while. We must all pass through the Garden of Gethsemane. If Christ spent an anguished night in prayer, if he burst out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then surely we are also permitted to doubt. But we must move on. To choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. We're not meant to sit in our doubt perpetually. We're meant to move forward. Don't celebrate doubts and allow them to loiter in our heart, but rather we need to decide what we need to make up our mind and then pursue that wholeheartedly to find a place of rest to say, this is where I'm going to move forward. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes this to the church. He says, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He says, you're getting blown around. I think of how I was in that parasail glide thing. At the mercy of the wind, and so many Christians live their lives like that, with doubt, throwing them this way and that. They hear a new philosophy, they hear a new thought, a new system, uh, whatever it might be, a new morality that's coming around. And they get blown side to side because there is no groundedness in their faith. And they've lived in a perpetual doubt. And rather, what Paul is calling them to, remember that first one, those first words he said is, in their faith. We need to be rooted. You see... Faith is something we don't need to fear, we need to face. And faith, having faith is not the absence of doubt. Sometimes we say, if I have faith, then that means I can't doubt. But rather, faith is actually the means by which we can move past doubt. Faith is the mechanism that gives us the ability to move past our doubt and to say, I'm trusting you, God. It keeps me believing even in the midst of my doubt. Um, Theologian uh, Frederick Buckner, he just passed away uh, last year actually, He said this, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith, and they keep it awake and moving. (laughs) Doubts are what keep us moving. If we get too comfortable, if we get too uh, complacent, um, then we're not thinking critically through our faith. Doubt is what stirs us up to be uncomfortable, right? It forces us to grow. To actually ask the question, okay, why do I believe this? Have you ever asked that question? That's a good question to ask. Why do I believe what I believe? Not to settle into the complacency. An untested faith is a faith that is going to atrophy. Do you know what atrophy is? When you don't exercise a muscle, it starts to die. I don't know if anybody's been bedridden for a long time or maybe in a wheelchair for a long time. You have to rebuild that strength. 
You have to go to physical therapy because your muscles actually atrophy and die. When faith is not exercised, when we have to push back against doubt, when we have to actually work through it, we, 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 faith itself can atrophy. So growth can actually be born out of doubt. Isn't it a blessing to know that doubt itself can be a blessing? Doubt itself can be something to which God can receive glory and we can grow. Growth can be born out of doubt, not by settling into it, but by working through it. So, the important thing I want to establish is, where is your starting point? Where is your starting point with your doubt? And this is what I mean by this. There was a second story that came to mind as I was preparing this message, and that is Thomas. I mean, the guy's name was Doubting Thomas. That's an unfortunate name. Thomas was, was, was this, he was a cat that was one of the disciples, right? But the rest of the disciples had seen Jesus resurrected, but Thomas was, was at Winco at the time. He was buying something, or I don't know. He missed it. And the disciples told him, Jesus is alive. And do you know what Thomas says? I don't believe it. Unless he shows up and shows me the nail marks in his hands and the wound in his side and lets me stick my finger in him, gross, I won't believe it. Thomas's starting point was with disbelief. He said, unless he does this, I won't believe it. What was John's approach? What was John's posture when he came to Jesus? He says, Jesus, I need you to confirm for me what I know to be true, but I'm struggling. Are you the one? Tell me. Do you see the two approaches? Now, Jesus responded to these two in very different ways as well, because Jesus followed that up by praising John. There has not been anyone born of a uh, a woman that is is so uh, uh, powerfully used, essentially, he says of John. But then Thomas, he's like, Thomas, 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 what is your deal, bro? Our posture is important when we approach our doubts. Are we going to God and saying, I won't believe it unless you strike some lightning down around me or something. Something's got to happen and it's got to be cool. Or are we saying, God, I am struggling right now. I need you to confirm with me what my faith is informed. Show it to be true. Help me walk through my doubt. Help me pass through my doubt. Let me tell you, Jesus is ready to meet you in your doubt, to speak to your uncertainties. Take heart. God is for you. Even in your doubt, God is for you. He, uh, this frees us. Even when the answer isn't guaranteed, let me tell you, I'm going to show up to heaven and I'm going to have a filing cabinet behind me with questions that have been unanswered. Doubts that I've had, things that I'm just like, I don't get it. And I'm going to be like, God, get comfortable. Here we go. A, right? I have a lot of questions that I'm going to be going through with God, but, but we can actually have the freedom to approach these because of what God has done. One of my favorite theologians, his name is Francis Schaeffer. Anybody ever heard of Francis Schaeffer? He said this, the ancients were afraid that if they went to the end of the earth, they would fall off and be consumed by dragons. But once we understand that Christianity is true to what is there, true to the ultimate environment, the infinite, personal God who is really there, then our minds are freed and we can pursue any question and can be sure that we will not fall off the end of the earth. Here's what he's saying. He kind of talked old Englishy style. I understand that. But what Francis Schaeffer was saying was the infinite personal God is here and you can pursue your questions safely. You will not fall off the end of the earth by asking hard questions. You will not be consumed by dragons, by the unknown, but rather uh, he is here to catch you even in your doubts. When my kids were little, we would go to the swimming pool and this would happen several times as they were growing up. They'd stand on the edge of the pool And I'd get in the water and I'd say, jump to daddy. Anybody ever do this with your kids? You can jump down. I'm right here. And they go, 
I'd say, I, I'm, I can catch you. I'm, I'm big enough. I, trust me, I carry you all the time. I've been carrying, you know, I, this is not hard for me. And then, mm, I don't know. And what's interesting is they can stand there and they can knowledge know that daddy's big enough to catch them. They've seen it done a thousand times, right? And uh, pick him up, all those things. They can know that I'm big enough to catch them. But do you know what they see? The water's so deep. It's deeper than my head. And if I jump off the edge, then I can't touch the side. And they see all the things that are, that are fearful and, and the doubts that they have, despite what they know to be true, the doubt is holding them back. In the same way, the infinite personal God is here and he's ready to catch you even in your doubt. But he's saying, step off and trust me though. Step off the edge and trust me. I'm here to catch you. And, and when my kids would do that and they'd stand on the edge of the pool and I'd beg and I'd beg and I'd beg. Sometimes it would, it would take most of our time in the swimming pool to get them to jump. And when they first finally step off, it like unlocks something. And then it was a whole new level of fun at the pool. And I had to be on high alert because then they're like jumping in and I don't even know when they're jumping. They're like, ah, you know, and they're just because suddenly they realize there's a new freedom. There's a new, there's a new trust that I can have. And when we trust God, even through the doubt, suddenly it unlocks something in us. It unlocks a new level of faith. God caught me here. I can trust him here. Now I can trust him with other areas I may have doubt. Other areas where I may have had struggle. Other areas where I may, may have grappled with. I can ask the hard questions. I can move past it. And I love the song that we just sang this morning where we all sang together, even when I can't see it, you're working. Even when I can't feel it, you're working. And we trust God, even in the unknown, even in the times when I don't see you, God. Even in the times where I don't feel you, your presence right there. I know that you are there, that you're going to catch me, that you're going to hold me, that you're going to sustain me. We can trust him with our doubt. So this morning, we're going to respond together. And I want to ask you, is there an area where doubt has been living in your heart and maybe it's been living rent-free and there's been no determined time of departure and you want to address that doubt? You say, this is the time where I need to take it to God. I need to hear truth. I need to respond to that truth. I need to live in that truth. Listen to the voices that I pay attention to the voices that I'm listening to. I need to bolster my faith in the word. And you say, Pastor Brent, that's me. I need a faith booster in my doubt. Can I tell you, I have passed through many seasons of doubt, and there are probably doubts I still am navigating right now. You're not alone. If that's you, though, and something comes to mind, something you have been doubting God in or maybe struggling with, can I pray with you? Will you raise your hand? I want to pray with you. Raise it high. Yeah. Across this room. So many of us. I don't think you're human if you don't go through a season of doubt. Right now, if your hand is raised or if you're next to someone whose hand is raised, put your hand on their shoulder right now. We're going to pray together. We are a family. Remember, these are the voices of truth that are around us that can encourage us with the faithfulness of God. So right now, Lord, I pray with my brothers and sisters. We pray with those that are walking through seasons of doubt. They think of those particular moments or those those issues. Maybe it's going, God, can I trust you with my future? God, can I trust you with my job and my income? God, can I trust you with my my children because I don't know if they're going to serve you. I don't know why they're going making the decisions they are. God, can I, are you really good? Are you really a God that's present and hears me when I'm crying out to you in the night and feel alone and feel empty? Are you there, God? Lord, I pray that you would speak through our doubts and that you would meet us where we are. 
Holy Spirit, we pray right now that you would meet us where we are in this room. Help us move through doubt. Help us grow our faith as we step out in trust and feel you catch us in your strong arms and know that there it is. Once again, another story of when God followed through for me and I can trust him with tomorrow. Lord Jesus, I pray that faith would rise up within us. Not faith that cancels out every doubt, but faith that helps us move through doubt to the next story. And we thank you for it, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Right now, we're going to do our connection cards together. And here's what I ask you to do. On your connection card, if you're new, make sure you let us know this is your first time. But in the prayer section, or tell us your story section, whatever it says there, there's a a way that I would love for us all to respond together. Is there an area of doubt that maybe you haven't addressed or that you're walking through right now that you need to trust God with? Let me tell you. Uh, we've also got, it's, a, uh, it's online at nlcchurch.com slash connect or through the Sunday links. Or if you prefer the paper one, we've got the connection card paper ones right there. We, do, we all do this together. And uh, I will tell you that we keep your answers confidential. We will not email them out to everybody. Can you believe what Brother Jones said? Pray for him. Whoa, that dude. But let me tell you, in the core leadership of our church, we want to lift you up in prayer. Last week, I think we had four pages of prayer requests that came in through our church that our elders prayed over. We, we lift you up, saints. We believe that it is our job to shepherd and guard the flock and to lift you up and bring your prayers to the Lord. And so let us know what an area is we can be agreeing with you in that you are walking through doubt and what we can be agreeing with you on. Um, maybe there, maybe you need to say, what are some things that I've been listening to, some voices that have not been true? I've not been listening to truth. I've been listening to deceit. I've been listening to things and it's been informing me and it's becoming my truth even though I know it holds no capital T truth. You say, this is what I need to give to the Lord right now. Write that down as we close today. But here's something I want to do. If, if we could have our elders and any prayer team members just kind of gather on the sides here, I would like to do this. If you've never given your life to Jesus, If you say, Pastor Brent, I've had doubt in my, my life. I don't know if I've trusted who God is. I don't know if I've trusted who Jesus is and who he says he is and the Bible and all these things and all the people believe. But it's brought me to a point where I need to make a decision and not just live in this kind of wavy, we'll see what happens, doubt kind of zone. But I need to step into truth. Let me tell you, God did not just, uh, uh, you are not here by accident, first of all. You are not an accident. God designed and created you and he placed you here for a purpose. You didn't just fall onto this earth by accident, but God placed you here. He designed you. He intentionally uh, placed you here to, to be known by him and to know him. And today he invites you to relationship with him. So this morning, if you have, say, P Pastor Brent, I've never given my life to Jesus. And this morning I need to give my life to him. I want to encourage you to come forward, find one of these members of our prayer team, one of our elders. And let them know that you want to give your heart to Jesus. They're going to lead you in a prayer and in the next steps of what it means to follow Jesus. But also this, we want to just take a moment for these altars to be open to you. If you would like prayer for anything. If maybe you've been walking through a season of doubt. Maybe you've had healing in your body that you've been waiting for a long time. And you say, God, I need to receive that healing in Jesus' name. We want to pray for you. 
If there's a family member you want prayer over, if there's a story, something going on in your story, something in your life that needs prayer, we're not going to uh, officially dismiss. Here's how it's going to be. It's going to be a soft dismissal. So if you need to go, you are welcome to step out. Just take your conversation in the lobby, please. And we're going to remain here for an opportunity for prayer for people. Is that all right? It's kind of a unique closing. But this is second service. We do what we want in second service. All right. So right now what I'm going to do is close us in prayer. And if you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have something that needs prayer, I encourage you to come forward, find one of these team members. They want to pray with you. And the rest of us, God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful, blessed day. And we'll see you at Life Groups this week. Let me pray over you. Father, this morning we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word depicts not perfect people. It's people that struggle with questions. People that struggle, even that seem like the people that should have it most together, have our questions, but we can bring them in confidence to you, Jesus. Thank you, God, that you will always meet us when we bring our questions, that you don't play hide and go seek, but you are always available to be found for those who truly seek after you. And so this morning, we pursue you. As we go this week, don't let us be lazy about our faith or shirk off the things that would say, I I need to pursue God, but Lord, we would chase after you with intentionality and with hearts that are fully devoted to you, Jesus. That New Life Church would be a church that's marked as people who aren't perfect, but who work through their frustrations, their doubts, and are redeemed by a saving grace. And we thank you for it, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you'd like prayer, we encourage you to come forward, pray with us. Otherwise, God bless you. Have a blessed, blessed week, New Life.